Welcome to the Holistic Health Podcast, beautiful humans. If a professional, polished, well-edited podcast is what you're after, then move right on. If, however, you love unfiltered banter, unedited bloopers, authentic heart sharing, and a very generous dash of holistic health education, then you're in the right place. Hello, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Health Podcast. Do you know what I really want to say? I want to say who I am. <laughs> Do you know how podcasts are like? Yes. I'm Natalie Douglas and I'm the, um, whatever. They the queen care. of the world. Were you about to say the queen of the world? I am the queen of the world. I wouldn't put no, it past but, your little Leo no. ass. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> <Bro>. <laughs> no. But I realized, so, I mean, I'm sure people who listen often know the difference between my voice and your voice because they are very different. But I wonder if people get us confused sometimes. I wonder that too, actually. Hmm. I mean, surely not. We're quite surely different. not. Sure. Well, I don't know. If, if if you do find it confusing, please let us know and we'll be yeah. sure to update our introductions in the beginning. <laughs> Help a sister out. <laughs> oh, so fun. Well, I will let you take take the take it away with this. Oh, stop it. So I can just calm my tits over here for a minute. (laughs) The only reason this little limelight lover is is handing me the microphone so early is because she's got (laughs) big plans for this episode, friends. Consider this your uh, your first and final warning that um, this subject has Nat's knickers in a bunch (laughs) quite badly. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to get out of the way for the most part in this episode and just let her fly free. Um, because this is a subject that is quite a contentious one. Um, we both work with women, you know, who are pregnant or looking to get pregnant, and it is just a different set of rules for a lot of different things, actually, not just iron, things around thyroid, things around liver enzymes, things around electrolytes, all kinds of stuff. Um, just goes it just goes out the window when when someone falls pregnant. And in this case, the issue with iron levels, maintaining or optimizing iron levels in pregnancy is an area where holistically speaking and naturopathically speaking, our view of this is quite different to the allopathic view. Would that be fair to say, Nat? Um, Doubt, yes. <laughs> um, it is fair to say. And what I would say is that arguably our way of approaching it is actually far more evidence-based, but who's counting? Oh, God. <laughs> she's really, she's like, <laughs> who's <now>? counting? <laughs> Hold me back. I see early on. All right. Well, look, I'm going to just open this episode with just some of, the, some of the basics. So what is getting iron tested entail? We want to talk about that. What markers do we need in order to have proper testing, air quotes, mm-hmm. Um and just some of those things to keep in mind. So the reason why we're going to start this conversation there is Nat and I, as well as any other prackies who might be listening to this, have seen our fair share of pathology tests from GPs. And this is no shade on the GPs because I know you're hamstrung as far as Medicare goes sometimes, but often we're looking at just ferritin and there is a judgment made on ferritin levels that really, quite frankly, puts far more responsibility on the shoulders of ferritin than rightly should be there. And unfortunately, 
it's very similar to looking at TSH and judging the health of the thyroid on just TSH. You're missing just such a huge part of the picture. Um, and it, and each sort of element tells a story about what's really going on, which ultimately, as Nat said, evidence on an evidence-based basis will guide you more appropriately as to how to support someone and whether or not indeed is there even an issue here um, in the event ferritin is lower than we would classically like. So let's start there. So when we're looking at iron, there is a difference between looking at ferritin and iron studies. Obviously, ferritin is a part of the picture. It is one of several uh, storage proteins um, that act to sequester iron and hold on to it for the body. Um, we also want to look at the percentage of transferrin saturation. So when you order iron studies as opposed to just serum iron, which of course, spoiler alert, is part of iron studies, we also want to look at the transferrin saturation as well. Um, this is really important. It's actually more sensitive for iron deficiency than serum iron or TIBC alone, but TIBC also plays a part. So that's total iron binding capacity, which really helps to estimate how much transferrin can carry iron around in the blood, which is of course where the majority of the iron in the blood sits. So on top of that, to get, a, I guess, a more holistic picture, we want to look at things like CRP, maybe hemolysis index, um, and also a full blood count, like hemoglobin is the other major player here as the protein that is transporting iron around the body and is arguably more important than ferritin, depending on what you're looking at it for. So if you really want to know what's going on with your iron, regardless whether you're pregnant or not, or if you're a male listening to this, not a female, those really are the various parameters that we would want you to have tested in order to get a full picture of what's going on. But further to that, we want to make sure that when you head off to get the tests done, that you are also guided appropriately to get the most accurate result. So, and this is this may or not may or not be something that your doctor might tell you if you're getting your tests done through them. So, number one, we want to make sure you are well rested. So you've had a good night's sleep the night before, and ideally, you know, you're well rested in general um, and getting proper sleep. Number two, we want to make sure that you these tests are done fasting. What does that mean? We want you to go and get these blood tests done in the morning before you've eaten or drunk anything except for water. Um, and that way, nothing you eat or drink could influence the outcome of any of these results so that we can obviously assess them most accurately. And thirdly, if you are taking iron supplements and if you've got an issue with iron, there's a very good chance you've been prescribed something either from your doctor or from your natural health practitioner or a bit of both. It makes sense, I would hope, putting one plus one making two, that taking iron supplements and then going to test your iron is probably not the best way to do it. So if you have been taking iron supplements, we recommend that you stop them for at least three days before heading off to get your blood test done. So if you've been able to tick all of those three boxes and you have been able to get an assess and more accurate and holistic assessment using all of those biomarkers that I just mentioned, then you're ready to actually assess whether or not you have an iron issue 
or some other form of anemia. Now, if you have been listening to us for a while, we did do an episode back, uh, episode number 33, Do You Really Have Low Iron? And that probably gives you more context around that particular piece of the conversation. Um, And if you're not pregnant, you can also uh, revisit episode 37 about the right and the wrong way to fix low iron. But before we proceed any further, I do want to let you know that pregnancy is a really unique time for a woman and things behave differently, physiologically speaking, throughout the various trimesters. And so many of the things we talked about in terms of how to fix low iron in episode 37 actually don't have any bearing once you're in trimester two and trimester three. Now, Nat's going to explain more about that in just a second, um, but I just wanted to point that out because I don't want you to rush off and, and listen to 37 and go, oh, I know what to do now. So, Now we're going to dive into the juicy subject that we want to get started on, and that is iron, iron status in pregnancy, and why this is such a tricky area to navigate. So Nat, this is your cue to step up into your soapbox. And my first question for you, drum roll please, (laughs) is first of all, I know from obviously dealing with midwives, OBGYNs, you know, supporting women through pregnancy, there is a lot of attention and focus and concern around iron status during pregnancy. Mm. And I want to hear from you like what drives that, but also really what's actually happening to iron in pregnancy, which means this concern around iron may be somewhat misplaced or perhaps over overstated. Mm, yes. Oh, so <laughs> before I actually answer that question, I, I I just something popped into my mind around prefacing this conversation with if you are someone who knows that they've got um any form of like thalassemia, um, which is basically like a a kind of like a blood disorder where you you don't make enough hemoglobin. A lot of what I'm talking to in terms of the physiology physiology in a moment is not quite the same for you because you've got, I guess, a difference happening there. So I'm mentioning that because I I also am mindful I do have some clients um, that will likely listen to this episode who fit into that boat. And if that's you or you're one of my clients, then know that, yeah, we're interpreting and managing things slightly differently. Um, but that's not the majority of people. The majority of people do not have that. And it's likely that you would know about it if you had it. Mm. So in terms of, um, yeah, I guess why why all of the big deal around iron and, and pregnancy is that simply put, if we don't have enough iron, it can lead to what we call anemia, which is basically when we don't have adequate hemoglobin to carry oxygen around the body. Um, And enough oxygen is definitely fundamental to a healthy pregnancy, um, both for us and also for the the baby. Um, So just for some numerical context for those who love, love a number or two, When you're not pregnant, most women have about three grams of stored iron. And then during pregnancy, we need about another 500 milligrams to 1.2 
grams to get to get through. And if you go into pregnancy with suboptimal iron status, um, even if you're not anemic, you are kind of starting off on the back foot. Um, but that doesn't automatically mean that everyone needs to be taking iron. And we'll chat more about that soon. Um, Another thing just to consider is that the recommended daily intake of iron is about 27 milligrams per day in pregnancy, though what's really interesting here is that that number, although it's communicated even in the RDIs and from GPs and other um, practitioners that that's what you need from conception right through to birth. It that number is actually based on the end of pregnancy demands, um, but it gets attributed to the whole of pregnancy. So just you know, the first little mm, okay, interesting. We're making generalized statements when things change across trimesters, but who's counting? Mm-hmm. Um, in late pregnancy, where there's a lot of transfer of iron happening between mum and bub, um, it's about actually seven milligrams per day that's needed at the peak of um you know maternal to fetal transfer of iron which you know it's very much a late pregnancy thing that's happening and when i say 7 milligrams i mean like that's what the fetus alone is is taking so really you don't have to remember those um levels at all i'm more just speaking to people who are interested in in where some of those numbers have come from in the recommended daily intakes um and look again to kind of point out how you know, not super well uh, managed this can be is just to let you know that in some countries, iron is given as standard care. Just when someone falls pregnant, they're like, right, you need to take an iron supplement. And in others, it's done on a case-by-case basis. So there's no um, international standard consensus. Um, And the other thing to know is that it's it's very arguable how reliable and evidence-based some of the cutoffs for ferritin and hemoglobin are. Um, probably a bit of a conversation that's beyond the scope of just this more general podcast, but I'm I'm sharing this with you to let you know that even though it's spoken to us or communicated to us or the general public, I should say, in a very like black and white way, there's more nuance and less certainty behind a lot of these different things um, that we're speaking about. So yeah, I, I think that's that's good to to just have some context around that. Mm. Should I should I share like I'm just thinking where to go next, maybe a little mm. bit around like the journey of iron in pregnancy? Yeah, I think that would be really helpful for people to hear about what actually unfolds. I mean, you've alluded to it a little bit already in terms of iron transfer to the unborn baby towards the end of pregnancy. But yeah, why don't you take us through what actually happens to this mineral during a pregnancy so we can understand Yes, I shall. I shall. Let's go on an iron journey, friends. Yes, let's. Um, all right. Well, the first thing to understand is that during pregnancy, particularly from about trimester two, is that your plasma volume expands. So plasma is kind of like the liquid portion of blood. And the growth of your red blood cells doesn't um, exactly happen at the same time Um which is why it looks like your blood gets diluted. So the medical term for this is hemodilution. So if someone refers to that, you know that all that means is it's like you, you've you got, say you've got like a, a cup, 
two cups of blueberries, right? And each each cup has 10 blueberries in it, but one of the cups you pour 500 mils of water into and the other cup you pour a liter of water into, you still have 10 blueberries in each cup, but to the naked eye, it might look like that the cup that has less water in it looks like it's got more blueberries because it's taking it's it's existing in a smaller space. Mm. Um, so that's how I often think of it as well. So um, yeah, that's just the first thing to know. So what women are not often told is that this diluting and therefore the kind of lower looking red blood cell parameters that follow is actually very normal and important for a really healthy pregnancy. So what's happening is that the blood, so to speak, is becoming less viscous or sticky, which allows the blood to flow to the placenta um, more easily. So it's normal and expected to see your hemoglobin and your hematocrit, which are both part of a full blood count that Amy was talking about earlier, drop in trimester two, which is where the hemodilution, so that diluting of your of your plasma is at its peak. Um, and, and ferritin is the other thing that is commonly measured here and commonly very misinterpreted. But what happens is that it's physiological, it's physiologically normal um, that it that ferritin is at its highest at the end of trimester one because you haven't quite reached the peak of that hemodilution there. And also the baby hasn't quite gotten to its peak demand of iron yet. So around about week 16 is usually when we see like a big drop in ferritin happen. Um, and again, it's expected, not a red flag if you know how to interpret iron studies properly and you're aware of how iron behaves during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So this drop, you know, we often witness is happening for a few reasons. The first, again, is because of that hemodilution that is starting to peak around that time. But the second is also because as the mum, you are actively pulling iron out of its stores. So ferritin is what is what the iron stores are and directing it to the baby, which is exactly what should happen. So that it's really important that we need to keep that in mind that seeing a bit of a drop in ferritin from trimester one to trimester two is expected and normal. Um, and most of the time, nothing to to panic about provided we're still in some some you know good ranges there which we'll talk about later mm. so the other thing that is kind of changing or or um, something to be aware of is that how we handle or how we manage iron in the body does change during pregnancy so the most important example of this is a little molecule a little molecule called hepcidin and we've actually spoken about this in the other iron episodes now, you can stay with me here, I promise. It sounds complicated, but um, we're going to try and understand it. So this molecule um, is released from the liver when the body detects that either we have enough iron stores and it's like, yo, we're good down here. We don't need any more. We don't need any more. Or it detects inflammation in the body. Mm-hmm. And one of hepcidin's jobs is actually to block the uptake of iron from your gut when either your iron stores are already full 
or your body is detecting that it, there's inflammation around and it doesn't want to bring any more iron into the into the body. So think of hepcidin as a stop sign, as a like, yeah, we're good here, we're full, or actually red flag, there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. Now, in pregnancy, the opposite kind of happens. So hepcidin in trimester two and three actually gets suppressed to allow more iron absorption that would not happen outside of pregnancy. Um, And some cool fun facts um, are that the baby can make its own hepcidin and it can absorb iron in a few different ways. And ultimately, um, it will prioritize itself and its own needs over the mum. So I find that a lot of my mum clients find that comforting um, because, of course, mama instincts are already kicking in and, and they want that reassurance that, you know, their their baby is is coming first in in that regard, which I think is biologically very normal to feel and and express. And and obviously there is going to be a point in which the baby could still not be getting enough iron if the availability of iron is no longer even adequate to kind of steal enough from. Um, but what we know from the research so far is that a ferritin level under about 13 is the point in which we think iron availability becomes compromised for the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, something to kind of mark there down as something to keep an eye eye on. Um, but I might just just pause there for a moment and just check in um mm-hmm. what what any anything to add there Ames yeah look as we mentioned I mean this is really where you do want someone who's trained in nutritional medicine which your doctors and OBGYNs are not and neither are your midwives looking at this for you and supporting you along the way because it's very easy understandably pretty much everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants the mum to be healthy and the baby to be healthy. Everyone has holds the same intention, but not everyone holds the same training. Just like you wouldn't ask me to deliver your baby. <laughs> I reckon I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'd, I think, well, I mean, look, the body kind of does it itself, but you it's wouldn't ask me to do a C-section on you. Although no, I'd give it no, a red I think I'd draw the line. Look, if we were in Siberia and it was necessary, I mean, I don't know, but you get my point. This is, I am not trained in surgery. I am not trained in delivering babies. I am, however, trained in nutritional medicine and so is Nat. And so when you are looking at nutrient status, you want to be talking to someone and having someone's eyes and support on it who actually knows what they're doing. And so, Nat, you've given us a little, you've dangled a little carrot here (laughs) telling us that watching ferritin and ensuring it doesn't drop below 13 is definitely one sort of thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything more you want to share with us about monitoring iron status or iron Mm. studies, I should say, because all of those little moving parts obviously are important. Um, And and what would you consider to be important to monitor and outside of ferritin dropping below 13? Are there any other red flags where you would be like, we need to be concerned, this looks like it's going to be an issue? Yeah, yeah. I think it probably what's most helpful 
is maybe if I talk you through how I approach it as a practitioner from, you know, from trimester one onwards. So, I mean, the first thing to know is that I absolutely recommend that you get your iron tested and all of my clients will have their iron tested at least once a trimester Mm -hmm. um, because I often find comparing an individual's results across their pregnancy is important rather than just results full stop. I mean, if all you have is what you have, then that's, you know, what we roll with. But is but is my preference that we actually have um, you know, gathered data for you as an individual, um, you know, through pregnancy and even before it, if I if I am in the position to be doing that, which I often am, um, because I'm working with a lot of preconception care before people fall pregnant. But anyway, that aside in trimester one, I think ferritin is probably one of the most reliable, like, well, it's the most reliable it's ever going to be because there's no significant hemodilution just yet. And contrary to popular belief, the demand for iron isn't super high at this point in pregnancy because mum has stopped menstruating, therefore she's not losing as much blood each month. And the baby's requirements are only around two milligrams a day compared to the seven milligrams a day demand that happens in trimester three. And ferritin at this point in time is also helpful clinically because it lets us it lets us know as your practitioner what the iron status of of mum is going into pregnancy, and it is also a predictor of her risk of deficiency or anemia through the rest of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the first trimester of pregnancy. Serum ferritin is is definitely our friend when we come when it comes to what markers are we looking at, and it's yeah as I said it's the most accurate, the most meaningful in early pregnancy compared to any other time, and it does definitely reflect the kind of iron stores that mum brings with her into pregnancy and you know, and and is that predictor. So it's really important that you understand that. And that's why I think getting it tested in the first trimester is important. Um, And the other thing to consider is that, you know, well, actually, one thing I wanted to say here is that when I'm talking about the first trimester and, you know, your ferritin and how it will look is that that's not considering how it might look if you happen to get IV iron later down the track, then maybe your maybe your ferritin would look higher then. But just just wanted to point that out there. Mm. The reason um, for this is be, like is again because of that hemodilution that hasn't happened yet and the demand. So in terms of ferritin goals in the first trimester, there's a very wide cutoff range that ranges from six to 130, which is wild, right? And of course, we have a tendency to think more is more, but it's not. Um, I'm always a bit hesitant to actually put a blanket number on it because, again, we're talking about one number, not the whole story. But there is some research that suggests that it's ideal to not have a ferritin below about 30 micrograms per liter when we're talking about mitigating the risk of anemia in later trimesters. Um, and when, I, when I'm when i saying that 30 micrograms per liter, I'm talking about in trimester one. Um, mm-hmm. But as with most things in nutrition, um, you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So this is where, again, working with a practitioner who understands iron well is important, not just automatically reaching for an iron supplement or downing liver capsules on your own without an understanding of what or why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and when, you know, I would also be looking at um, hemoglobin levels. I would be looking at all the things Amy mentioned are part of a good um, iron studies test in trimester one as well and taking into consideration the dance that's happening between those because I'd probably say in that first trimester, it's it's not too dissimilar to interpreting non-pregnant iron studies. But then moving into trimester two is where just shit hits the fan in terms of trying to interpret things. Um, and where this is where I find a lot of the disagreements um, start to come up between, for example, how I'm interpreting something, how a midwife's interpreting something, how a doctor's interpreting something, and where the the kind of, you know, people start to get unsettled and, and conflicted and confused. So I think understanding this is important so that you can stay calm if you're told that you're iron deficient and maybe get a second opinion. You may be, but you also might not be. So moving into trimester two, ferritin becomes a very unreliable marker because there are multiple factors at play that influence it. So hemodilution is at its peak. Your baby is demanding more. There's more iron being mobilized from your own stores. Um, your your hepcidin is suppressed um, and we actually expect ferritin to drop. Um, and here in this point, I actually prefer to consider a woman's ferritin as a comparison of her first of her trimester one ferritin. And still I'm I'm hoping that it's not, and I'm looking for it not being below about 13 just at any point in time across pregnancy, but I'm I'm kind of comparing their own trends over time. And I'd also be looking at other markers like transferrin and hemoglobin and making a call based on that individual as to whether I thought this was starting down the path of something that needed supplementation or whether it was a normal physiological adaptive process that's happening in, in trimester two. And then in trimester three, um, also gets a bit complex and a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit controversial because the reality is that your iron stores, so ferritin, will definitely look their worst um, that they're probably ever going to in trimester three. And I often see at this point a lot of women being unnecessarily scared into accepting IV iron infusions, which have a place and a time, but I do believe that they're overprescribed and overgiven. Um, and also just generally like panic prescribing happens here. And I know that we were talking off air, Amy, like that you notice this a lot in terms of that last trimester panic mm -hmm. prescription. Um, and again, I want to reiterate here that it's not that we're saying, well, I'm certainly not saying, and I know you wouldn't either, Amy, that there's never a place for iron supplementation. Like there's a huge chunk of my pregnant clients that have taken iron and there are a subset who have needed IV iron, but it is not a blanket you need it or you don't you need to you need to have your iron studies interpreted properly mm -hmm. so you know rather than go um over all the physiology again something to know um here i guess is that if your ferritin is below 15 micrograms per liter or so and or there is any anemia so anemia just means low hemoglobin and remembering that there are trimester-specific ranges for hemoglobin because of how your blood volume changes, um, then some form of individualized eye in intervention is worth considering. Um, the, and, you know, we'd both look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think something that I, I probably should highlight as well, and I kind of have already mentioned it, but I feel like I just need to underline and, and highlight it here is that, you know, we know that the most reliable marker about what is going to influence the baby's iron stores or status when they're born is actually hemoglobin. So making sure that hemoglobin is optimal in trimester three is important because this actually helps to decrease the risk of babies being born anemic or becoming anemic in the first year of their life. Um, And we could certainly go on to talk about delayed cord clamping, which makes a big difference to baby's iron stores as well. But I'm I'm not going to let myself go down the rabbit hole. I think to kind of bring it all together here is that all of the iron markers matter, but the emphasis on which one you um, hang most of your hat on is going to change based on the trimester that you are in. Mm-hmm. And that comparison of your own levels over time is important that ideally a ferritin shouldn't go too far beyond uh, um, 15 micrograms or so per liter at any point through your pregnancy and that really iron supplementation is most appropriate when there is both low ferritin and also low um, hemoglobin but hemoglobin has trimester-specific reference ranges so that each time you get your hemoglobin tested, you want to be making sure that you're not looking at just a non-pregnant reference range or that your practitioner is not looking at a non-pregnant reference range, that you've actually got the right reference range so you can make an informed decision around that. Mm. I'm just going to untie my knickers one second. (laughs) Back to you. Pluck them out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so as you can see, it's a really nuanced conversation and the context of the trimester matters a lot. So too does the context of your historical iron stories. Um, Certainly if you've had the benefit and advantage of working with a practitioner preconception-wise, you'll at least have some more data around that on which to base your decision. Um, And also just, I guess, another recommendation for having a practitioner in your corner is if you do end up in trouble, and I'm using air quotes, but let's say you genuinely do end up with an iron issue, an iron, you know, infusion is also not necessarily the only way to fix that. I'm just thinking about a client um, now who had her baby earlier this year who, you know, had ver- certain variables that um, perhaps made her overall iron status um, less than ideal, um, even preconception, you know, some mold exposure, um, a history of sort of vegetarianism, um, but ultimately, you know, did a really great job during pregnancy, but ended up in trimester three with a ferritin of eight, as well as, you know, transferrin or percent transferrin saturation levels that weren't great. And I think really importantly, I could see, you know, hemoglobin was in trouble as well. And I understood that her midwife was concerned about what that would mean for her with the coming delivery and the aftermath. And so we worked together really hard. Well, she really did all the work. I just gave her the advice. <laughs> what am I talking about? Um, and we managed to actually bring everything back into a really healthy range prior to her delivering the baby. She really didn't want an iron infusion. And, and as Nat said, there isn't a t- there is a time and a place for them, but they are not without 
their own sort of, I guess, collateral damage. And if you can correct things naturally, and in her case, you know, um, zinc deficiency was playing a part here and, you know, low retinol, which meant absorption across the gut wall was certainly not functioning optimally. So dealing with those underlying causes and also utilizing an optimal strategy for improving all of those parameters does mean in some cases you'll be able to avoid an iron infusion um, or remove the need for one, I should say, perhaps is is a better way of putting it. Um, And so, again, just a friendly reminder that when you're dealing with nutrient status, you want to deal with someone who's trained in nutritional medicine and someone who's actually trained as Nat's, you know, very artistic, Particularly pointed out today on how to look at that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I am calling it that. Yeah, that was a brilliant delivery. Um, and just knowing that someone has that background knowledge around what things are meant to look like through different trimesters and whether it is truly something that we need to be concerned about, or actually a very normal reflection of a physiological response that's doing exactly what nature intended it to do. Mm, Yes, I think. Yeah, hopefully we haven't uh, made anyone feel unsettled. It's it's more just to reassure you that there's like you have options and you have choices and it's just about making informed choices and, and knowing, you know, where to go for your support because I think it's overwhelming enough a lot of the time for people to be going through pregnancy, whether it's the first time or second or third or fourth or fifth or whatever it is. And so I think it's just really important that you feel like the decisions you're making are informed. And I would always encourage you that if you are, you know, unsure, you have a gut instinct, you know, about something being a little bit off, then second opinions are are really perfectly normal to seek out. Um, And if you are currently going through pregnancy or preconception or any point in um, in your health journey really and this topic is of interest to you or you need some support in managing your own iron levels then both of us are so happy to help you we um, cover this with all our one-to-one clients where it's necessary and relevant so don't um don't feel like you have to figure it out on your own. That's what people like us are here for. And you can reach out to either of us um and and book an appointment. Although pretty sure we're yeah, there's not many months left in the year, friends. So you probably should get onto that. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I feel like this episode has inspired me and probably Nat to talk maybe a little bit more about other pregnancy specific shifts with um, pathology, biomarkers, things like that. Should we put it in the ideas list, Nat? We'll put it in the, we have it, guys. So Amy's an Aquarius, which means she has. And a Gemini moon. I mean, yes, it's a lot. Um, And there's endless, (laughs) endless ideas. So in our shared podcast spreadsheet, there is an extra tab that has extra like Amy's extra ideas. It's very full. It's a very full tab. So we're certainly not short on them. And I actually haven't told you this, but at one point, I've actually don't know where I put it, but at one point I actually had a personal list of your of your extra ideas. Like not related to the podcast, but just generally life. I'm like, I can't keep up. 
It's a good problem to have. Come on. <laughs> it is. It's a great problem to have. Look, we make a good team because you've got endless ideas and I've got endless energy. So we're, we're, we're... look out, friends. We're not we're gonna be in your ear holes for quite some time. So we hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> I know. I just can't believe we still have things to say, but we do, <laughs> and we will be having things to say for many more years to come. And also we all we love to hear what you want us to say too. So keep sending your questions in. Um, you can DM us, you can submit one via SpeakPipe, which is where you can leave a little like voice note for us. Um, the link for that is in my Instagram bio and it's also in the link of the of the show notes. So we will leave that in your very capable, enthusiastic hand. If this has prompted any extra questions that you'd like us to turn into a follow-up episode, then just reach out to us. Otherwise, we will see. I was going to, I feel, always say, I feel like I want to say, we'll see you all, but we won't. We'll be in your ear holes. How does that yeah. feel, guys? Just give I me some know. feedback. I think we should work. Feels a bit invasive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'll get in your ear holes next week, gals. Um, <laughs> That's a bit creepy. So you can create your own ending from this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> we might wrap it up there. <laughs> Bye, friends. We love Bye. you. Bye. See ya.